I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. We continue with our study uh, most recently in the life of Elijah. 1 Kings. I'm actually going to have us begin our reading in the last couple verses of chapter 18 and then read through chapter 19 until we come to verse 18. So, beginning in 18, um, 40, 45, and uh, reading through uh, 19, verse 18. Hear the word of God. In a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. He asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. Forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke it in pieces, broken pieces, the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, 
But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, very jealous for the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of the people of Israel, uh, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Japheth, of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we come to this passage uh, in the book of 1 Kings telling us about Elijah. We ask, O oh God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to understand it, that we might be drawn by it, that we might, O oh Lord, learn from it. That you would help us to apply these things in our very own hearts and lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are times in everyone's life when our expectations of what God is doing or what is God, what God is going to do, uh, veer in a sudden and dramatic different direction. And this can lead us to disappointment, and it can also lead us to despair. After the great victory on Mount Carmel, where the Lord enabled Elijah to gather Ahab and the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, into a great demonstration and a showdown between the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the God, the covenant God of Israel. After that great demonstration of the Lord's power, when he came down in fire and consumed the sacrifice and the altar and the stones and the water, after that great victory, when the people had bowed and acknowledged that God indeed is the one true God. And it seemed as though Elijah's prayers had been answered. After that great victory, 
Elijah's hopes were dashed. And he faced such a time when he did not understand and he could not deal with the disappointment that he had. So tonight I'd like for us to consider the Lord's gracious provision for his discouraged people. The Lord's gracious provision for his discouraged people. Each and every one who follows Christ will at some time be overwhelmed with discouragement. So it was the case for Elijah, and we will find that the Lord dealt with him in a wonderful way. I'd like to look at this under five headings, and the first uh, heading is the zeal that should inspire us. The zeal that should inspire us. Second, the discouragement that can beset us. The discouragement that can beset us. Third, the presence that should feed us. The presence that should feed us. Verses 9 through 14. Fourthly, the sword that should warn us. Verses 15 through 17. The sword that should warn us. And fifthly, the grace that should thrill us. The grace that should thrill us. Verse 18. First of all, let's consider something of the zeal. The zeal that should inspire us. We see this, first of all, in chapter 18, verse 46. In chapter 18, verse 46, we're told that after Ahab got in his chariot and rode to his capital city of Jezreel, where he and his queen wife lived, Jezebel, uh, he rode to Jezebel in his chariot. And we're told that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment. And he ran on foot before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Here, Elijah is, uh, in a supernatural way, it can only be explained, enabled by God to run faster than horses and to run and get to Jezreel before Ahab. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And uh, we're also told that zeal is that which characterized Elijah's ministry as he tells us, as he actually speaks to the Lord in two verses, verses 10 and 14. In verse 10, you notice that he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. And so, we see then that Elijah characterizes his own ministry and his own uh, uh, feelings about his service for the Lord as one that is characterized by great zeal. We see that in his uh, ardent service to the Lord, his prayer life, as we thought, as we considered that last week, throughout his life. He was praying for 
first of all, for God's judgments upon the northern kingdom of Israel, and then also for the people's repentance as a result of those judgments, and then his prayer that the Lord would remove those judgments. We see Elijah ardent in prayer. We see his obedience to the Lord, and we see him uh, courageously facing the king, King Ahab, first announcing the drought that would come, and then uh, meeting him uh, to uh, tell him uh, uh, of the meeting on Mount Carmel. And so uh, Elijah is filled with a holy zeal for the glory of God. And when he describes uh, the disobedience of the people of Israel, you'll notice that uh, he says they have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars, and they have killed your prophets. Elijah has one thing that dominates his mind, is that he desires that the glory of God and that the covenant of God, the covenant that God had, been, had established with his people, would be reestablished, and that the people would turn from their idolatry, they would repent of their sins and be established once again as a holy people before God. And he ministers with a holy zeal, reminding us of one that would come later, John the Baptist, who also preached to the people of Israel, preparing them for the work of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and preaching a repentance that they would turn from their sin and that they would repent. And so Elijah had prayed, and he had prayed throughout his ministry that this people would know that you, O Lord, that you, O Lord, have turned their hearts back. He had that uh, overwhelming zeal for the glory of God. And he ministered mightily, and the Lord used him greatly. And yet we see that his hopes for Israel's return and for that turning back to the Lord, that repentance that he had challenged them to, that he had preached to them, that he had prayed for, was stopped dead when he got to Jezreel. Because Ahab being the man that he was, he seemed during the time of the confrontation at, uh, at Carmel to at least be a passive spectator. And while his very own prophets of Baal were killed, uh, watched that take place and did not interfere. And yet, when he gets back to his home, he reports to Jezebel, chapter 19, um, verse uh, 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword, putting all of that on Elijah, enraging Jezebel. And Jezebel responds, sending a messenger to Elijah to make sure that he got the message. So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time. Elijah got that message. And so the display of God's power on Carmel uh, did not cause the people then to repent, did not cause Ahab to repent. 
and certainly not Jezebel to repent. What was the hope of Elijah? That Ahab would turn to the Lord? That he would reject the direction that his own wife was promoting, that of Baal worship in Israel? And so the great display of God's power on Carmel seemed, no, it just came suddenly to a screeching halt in terms of what Elijah expected the Lord was doing here in this, in, in, through his ministry. I think he wanted Ahab to turn, and he wanted Ahab to take a stand against his wife. But that great display of God's power on Carmel did not change. Ahab's heart. It did not change Jezebel's. And that is something that is true generally. The great displays, miraculous things that occur are not necessarily the means that turn people's hearts. And that's a theme that comes through in this chapter. It was true in Jesus' own ministry. We're told by the Gospel of John that though Jesus had done many signs before the people, they still did not believe him. So awesome displays of power do not necessarily result in a permanent, effective repentance and a turning to God. So we see then, secondly, the discouragement that can overwhelm the discouragement that can overwhelm. We're told in verse 3 that uh, Elijah begins to travel to Mount Horeb, and he does this for his life. That is, he did not want his life to be taken by Jezebel. He begins to travel. And he stops at the southern tip of Judah. And you have to know a little bit of your, remember your geography, okay? The southern, the southern tip of Judah, there the town of Beersheba is, on the very edge of the territory, before you hit the wilderness of Sinai. And he leaves there his uh, servant, his young man that served him. And... Uh, he goes on a day's journey into the wilderness, and he sat down by a broom tree, verse 4. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he comes to Beersheba, and he goes a day's journey farther into the wilderness, the desert wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And there Elijah prays, verse 4. He asked, he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah, very disturbed. He's very upset. He says, I want to leave this world. Is this the question I want to pose, is this question, is this indulgent self-pity? A literal translation of what he says in verse 4 is this, much or great, Lord, now Yahweh, take my life. 
He feels as though the burden he has been bearing is too great for him to bear. And it seems that he wants to exit the stage. He has done all he knows how to do. He has experienced God's great blessing upon his ministry. And yet Israel is still Israel, unrepentant, unchanged. And she has broken, in his mind, he has, she has broken the covenant. He is upset because, not of, because of himself, but because of Yahweh's interest. He is upset because of Israel's breaking the covenant. And he is on his way to meet the Lord at Mount Horeb. And I believe that he wanted to meet the Lord at Mount Horeb in order for the Lord to take him there. He's ready to quit the stage. He's ready to die. At this point, I think I have to mention that there is an interpretive difficulty when it comes to chapter 19 in terms of understanding Elijah and God's response to him. There are those who see the great contrast between the Elijah of Carmel, a man of great power and might, used mightily by God, and the Elijah under the tree, praying that the Lord would take his life. It seems to be such a contrary vision of this man. For example, one writer, evangelical writer, says, what a contrast. Elijah, the hero at Carmel, victorious over Baal. Over Baal. Elijah, the coward of unbelief at Horeb, self-occupied, utterly discouraged, wishing to die, praying against rather than for the people of God. Another writer makes this observation about Elijah. Elijah's great faith was replaced by sudden fear. Elijah was desperate. He was suicidal. He was a traitor to the Lord's cause. Having run in his own direction, he was absent without leave. He had deserted his post in the middle of the battle. He had abandoned his divine calling at the crucial moment, and he was filled with proud ambition. That idea that he was filled with proud ambition comes from this, these words of Elijah where he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And that is read as meaning that Elijah is, filling, is filled with a sense of his own self-importance. Because there has not been the response that he had hoped for, he now complains to the Lord. Almost the whole of the literature on this chapter reflects this view of Elijah. And I don't myself accept it. I don't believe that this is an accurate view of Elijah. I do believe that he is depressed. I do believe that he is awfully discouraged. And I think he sees himself as 
having finished his work. And uh, I think he senses that his, what, what his calling is over. I don't see it as the kind of suicidal despair that some others do. Ralph Davis uh, agrees with me. Um, he, he says, this chapter in 1 Kings is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. And it is, in my opinion, the most consistently misinterpreted. End of quote. The Apostle Paul, I think, sheds light on this. And if you care to, I invite you to turn to chapter 11. And we're going to deal with this a little bit in a minute as well. In chapter 11 of Romans, chapter 11 of Romans, the Apostle Paul speaks about this incident with Elijah going to Mount Horeb. And, you know, the Apostle is uh, writing about the Jews and the place of the Jews um, and, and whether or not they, God's people, um, have been rejected. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew, Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? And then he goes on to quote Elijah's words. What I want us to note just for now is the phrase appeals to God against Israel. What Elijah is doing, he's he's terribly upset, but he's going to Mount Horeb to, to bring charges against Israel for breaking the covenant. And it is that covenant uh, and that zeal for God's covenant that moves Elijah, not unbelief, not uh, fear. And, and there, so I think it is true that Elijah's mission at Horeb was to bring a covenant accusation against Israel for the breach of the covenant. And verse 3 is critical for understanding this as well. Because in verse 3, we read, Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. And people understand that to say that suddenly Elijah became a coward. And yet, if you look at the Hebrew uh, that this is a translation of, what the the word uh, afraid can also be translated saw. And so the Hebrew actually says, And when he saw, or when he perceived, what did he perceive? Jezebel, Ahab, the royal court, uh, the threat upon his own life. When he saw this, when he perceived it, he determined to leave and go to Mount Mount Horeb. He ran, yes, for his life. He did not want uh, Jezebel to be the one who ended his life. He wanted the Lord to do that. And so I think it is um, a little bit inaccurate to say that he ran for his life in the sense that he was, he was a coward, but rather he went to Horeb to say, Lord, if you would, please take my life, not Jezebel. And so I, I, I think that is the right way to 
understand this, that he chose to present the case against Israel to God and at the same time to tell the Lord that he had had enough, that he had borne all he could bear. So we notice on this trip through to Horeb that the Lord shows him tender kindness, that the Lord shows him tender kindness. And so you notice that in uh, uh, verse 5, he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, a, a head or a, a loaf, a, a cake at his head, a loaf of bread on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And a second time the angel of the Lord came and touched him, said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So here we have discouraged Elijah laying under a tree and God's angel comes. And I think it is a beautiful, a beautiful thing that the text says that he touched him. Anyone who deals with someone who is asleep and trying to wake them up, how do you wake them up? You yell in and say, wake up. No, you come near and you touch. And, and you gently awaken them. And uh, we see that gentleness and that the beauty of God's dealings through his angel with Elijah. That the Lord shows his kindness to him and provides food and drink for him. In all of our lives, it is so important for us to know that there will be times when we have had enough. There will be times when we are upset. That is normal. It is common to man. It is common even at times to wonder if it isn't time for the Lord to take you. And sometimes we are in an emotional sense in the wilderness. We don't know what God is doing and we don't understand. And the best thing to do is to lay down and sleep. The best thing to do is to get some rest. But also to know that the Lord knows your suffering that the Lord knows your pain. And he is watching over you. He is keeping you as he kept Elijah. Oh, please know the nearness and the love of God for you in your suffering. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. The thirdly, I'd like for us to notice the presence that uh, feeds us or reorients us, verses 9 through 14. Now I want us to note, verse 9, that he came to a cave. Now, in the Hebrew, there is an article before the word cave. He came to the cave. And there's a specificity to the cave. I think that Elijah sees himself as retracing the steps of Moses. 
He desires to go to the place where Moses stood on the mount and the place where Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock and where God showed Moses his glory and declared his name to Moses and strengthened him to serve as the shepherd, as the under-shepherd of Israel. And so there is a specific, it's not just any cave, but it is the cave. It is the place, I believe, that Moses was, that Elijah believed that Moses was. It reminds us of that incident, does it not, where the Lord appeared to Moses and uh, caused his glory to pass by. He said, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then the Lord came and declared his name to Moses. I think that Elijah wanted a meeting with the Lord God of Israel. He needed to meet with God. And if you are in the place where Elijah is, that is your greatest need. It is to do the same, not to go to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, but to go to the mount where God is and plead with him and meet with him. And so the Lord invites Elijah to come and declare himself. And uh, while other interpreters uh, understand verses 9 and 13, that are translated, what are you doing here as a reproof? As though Elijah shouldn't be there and that he has deserted his post. The, the same words can be translated just as easily. Why are you here? Why are you here? Here again, you see something of the wonderful tenderness of God. That two times, God asked Elijah this question, why are you here? Is it because God didn't know? God knew why I was there. But he invited Elijah to unburden himself. And as I mentioned a minute ago, the best place you can be is in the very presence of God especially when you're downcast and when you're discouraged or you're fearful, you're confused. And the very best thing you can know is that the Lord invites you to unburden yourself to him. And that's what Elijah does. He says to the Lord, seek my life. And so Elijah uh, says to the Lord that there is this profound loneliness that he feels that it is, it seems, all on him. I think that what happens here in these verses is that the Lord asks him this question, and he asks him first in kind of an unofficial way while he's still in the back of the cave. He's, he's living in this cave, and he's in the back of the cave, and the Lord meets him, and he invites him to unburden himself first while he's still in the cave. But then he says to him, I want you to appear before me. And so the idea is that there is first a conversation with the Lord and Elijah in 
uh, sort of an unofficial conversation. And then he says, go and stand on the mount before the Lord. Verse 11, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Where Moses, the way Moses did, stand on the mount before the Lord. And he invites him to do that. And the Lord sent them uh, as harbingers of his coming. First the wind, then the earthquake, then the fire as precursors or harbingers of his arrival. And in each one of those cases, we're told that in this great, powerful demonstration of, of the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, the Lord's presence wasn't in any of those. But where was the Lord's presence revealed? Finally, and Elijah is still in the cave, he hears the sound of a low whisper. The sound of a low whisper. And it says, when Elijah heard it, it was as though that whisper was an invitation again to come and to meet the Lord. And he wrapped his face, he covered his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And then we're told, behold, there came a voice to him. We're told what that voice says in the verse that follows. But I think that what is happening here is there is that desired meeting between the Lord and Elijah. The Lord, as it were, meets with Elijah. And there is this communication. He asks him again, and this time officially, he's standing before him, before the court, before the Lord. State what it is that you have on your mind. And Elijah repeats himself, word for word, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken their covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's uh, plea is that the Lord would do something, that the Lord would do something. He brings an accusation against Israel. The Lord's presence and the power of God's word is revealed to Elijah on the mount. I want to know the voice, the voice. It is the voice, the word of the living God that speaks in the stillness and the quiet that Elijah hears. So what I want to say to you is the best thing that you need when you're discouraged is to experience the presence of God. And how are you going to experience the presence of God? The voice of God. The word of God. Not in the big and the dramatic. Not in the grandiose. I had a conversation just uh, yesterday. I don't want to cause any offense here. Um, some, some of you have been to see uh, Sight and Sound in Pennsylvania near uh, Lancaster. I just want to use this as an example. I was talking to someone yesterday about this, and they were just, just speechless at, at the effects of it and the beauty of it and the, the greatness and the, the demonstration that, is, that, that they put on. And it just immediately made a connection in my mind with Mount Carmel. 
If there was ever a demonstration of the great power of God for all the people to see, it was on Mount Carmel. What God is saying to Elijah, by causing the wind and the earthquake and the fire to come first, reminding him perhaps of Sinai, is that my presence is most intimately known in the voice, in the voice, in the word, in the still, small voice of God. So what I would say to you tonight is to listen to that voice. Listen to the word of God. Listen to God as he speaks to us. And it is his word that points us and has and does reveal the great power of God. It's the word that smashes the rock of the human heart. It is the word combined with the spirit that changes lives. It is the gospel, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, that is the power God, salvation. But where do you get power? It's not a light show. It's not the greatness of the effects. It is preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the wonder of God's grace and mercy that he has provided for us. It is not by might, not by power, not by my spirit, says the Lord. He says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It is the spirit of God working with the word that affects change in the human heart. And uh, briefly, just the final two points. The Lord then says to Elijah, after he asks him what he is doing there, in verse 15, he says, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elisha you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And he speaks of the sword, verse 17. The one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, shall Elisha put to death. So there is then finally the sword that should warn us, the judgment of God. If God comes in his great power through the Bible, through his word, through his voice to us in the gospel, What is then the word that we should also hear? And that is that there is a sword that warns us not to harden our hearts when God reveals himself in this way. Elijah is commissioned to go and to do these things, to anoint these men who will, in the fullness of God's historical time, unfolding in the mystery of history, they will carry out God's will of bringing judgment upon the house of Ahab, and upon, the house, upon Israel. And it is a warning to us all, and it is a reminder to us all, especially we who are in covenant with God, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts 
and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we give an account. I think of the writer of Hebrews constantly warning and exhorting those who had heard the gospel, those who had responded in faith to Jesus Christ, not to harden their hearts, but to keep going, to keep enduring in the Christian life, keep following after Christ. And so uh, the sword, God says that he will bring judgment. And, And so what you can say is, Elijah brings a covenantal case against Israel, God agrees with Elijah and announces that he is going to bring the sword upon the nation of Israel, but it will be in the mystery of God's working in human history through human agents. Think about that in terms of our own lives and our own time. The same is true. God's sword accomplishes his purposes. And then finally, the grace that should thrill us, the grace that should thrill us. The last verse, verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God is saying to Elijah, you're wrong. You are not alone. I have people. I have my people here. God has a people who cannot be harmed, whom Jezebel cannot hurt. God has a people in Israel still, the remnant, the remnant people of God who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so it is true that God's elect are protected by him. The Apostle Paul was told when he was ministering in Corinth to remain in Corinth, he said, and he was discouraged there, God told him to remain. He said, for I have many people in this city. We don't know who those people are. The Lord knows. We don't have the vision. We don't have the ability to know. But God says to Elijah, you're going to go back to your work. You're going to go back and to do the work. Due time, we learn later, God does take Elijah, doesn't he? He gives him what he asked for. It's in his time. So when you come to God, and you're discouraged, and you're weak, and you're overwhelmed, you don't understand. Draw near to him. Draw near to him through his word. Come and hear the preaching of the word. Come and hear God speak to you in the quietness of your own heart, convicting you of your own sin convicting you of your own need for the forgiveness of your sin and turning and saying then the only one, the only one who can protect you, the only one who can keep you, one who is the rock, the one who is the Lord who protected both Moses and Elijah Revealing his presence to them. God will reveal himself to you in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And so you come, you hear about Jesus Christ, you read about Jesus Christ, and your heart is pricked, your heart is moved, you are fed. 
you are reoriented. To turn and to go to sleep and to get up in the next day to do that which God has for you to do. May it be that we will see in Elijah something of a role model, something of a man who knew what to do when he was in despair. There was one with whom he had to deal, and that was the Lord God Almighty. God set him back on his feet again and set him on the path. Continued life and ministry to the day that that was to be ended. May God help us to do the same. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God who sustains. You are the God who keeps. And you are the God who knows that we are but dust. How many times, how many times have we groaned and cried? How many times have we wondered how we will go on? But you, O oh God, are the one who draws near to us in the Lord, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, to reveal yourself to us. Strengthen us that we might serve you in prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought it would be appropriate for us to sing as a closing hymn.